Welcome to Palmdale United Methodist Church's podcast for Sunday, May 10th, 2020. May God use this as a blessing to you today. Let us pray. Oh God, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, no matter where we are this morning. For you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, I am a huge sports fan. You name it, I'll play it, or at least watch it on TV. So naturally, one of the things that I've been missing during this new reality in the age of the coronavirus is live sports. Now granted, on the grand scheme of things and getting people uh, healthy and, and finding uh, uh, a way to, to, to overcome this, sports aren't that important. But for competitive people like me, it's definitely missed. With all the major sports that the United States uh, have shut down, ESPN has announced that they will start showing games from the KBO, the Korean Baseball Organization. I'm still debating whether or not I'm going to choose one of the 10 teams and start rooting for them, or maybe I'll ask Don Morris uh, uh, to join me in a Korean Baseball Fantasy League. Who knows? ESPN is also showing this amazing 10-part documentary called The Last Dance. It chronicles the 1997-98 Chicago Bulls basketball team and their run uh, for a record sixth NBA championship. Two episodes are released every Sunday evening. But really, it's a biopic for one of the world's greatest basketball players of all time, Michael Jordan. I am totally enjoying watching this every Sunday. Now, not to toot my own horn, but there are quite a few similarities between Michael Jordan and myself. For, for starters, we're both guys. We both love basketball. We're both very competitive. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much about it. Um, actually, though, I've passed my competitive nature on to my son, Ezra. This photo was taken at his wedding. This is uh, Ezra with my daughter, Emily. And Ezra and I have loved playing sports together since he was little. In fact, he started playing soccer when he was five, and he played all the way through college. When Ezra was young, during his first season of youth soccer, he had a game against his best friend from church, Nathan. And Nathan's mom, Katie, had uh, called my wife, Jody, and had a conversation, shared a conversation that she had had with Nathan. And Nathan said this, Mom, tomorrow... Our team is playing Ezra's team in soccer, and, and I don't know which team I want to win more, my team or Ezra's team. And Katie thought that was such a sweet thing to say, and, and Jody thought so as well. And when Jody told that to Ezra, that Nathan was torn about their game the next morning and who's going to win, you know what Ezra said? Mom, we're going to crush them. Yeah, the kid was five years old, right? I think he got it from me. Welcome to week two in our new sermon series entitled Mountains and Valleys Journeying with Elijah. And, and I mention competitiveness because we'll be looking at one of the more epic confrontations and competitions in all of biblical lore this morning. Elijah is one of the most famous and beloved prophets of the Old Testament. He's the only prophet never to have died but was taken into heaven on a chariot of fire Oops, I, I guess I should have said spoiler alert if you're going to be following through the series. Anyway, he lived this life of extremes with some powerful stories attached to him. 
I'm calling the series Mountains and Valleys because not only did he physically go from valleys to mountains and back down to valleys again, but he also traversed that same pathway emotionally, spiritually, relationally, and psychologically. And given the reality of where we are right now with the COVID-19 virus, this upside-down nature that our lives, all of our lives, have suddenly experienced, it seemed like there would be more than just a few connections between us and Elijah and his ministry. So, I invite you to open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Kings chapter 18. And if you have your uh, church app, our church app, you can open that up and on the bottom of the homepage, there's a place that says Bible. It'll open up a Bible app and you'll be able to uh, find the passage. In fact, every Sunday we direct it to the beginning of the chapter that we're going to be reading in worship. First Kings chapter 18, beginning at verse 1. After many days, the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year of the drought, saying, go present yourself to Ahab and I will send rain on the earth. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. The Elijah saga began uh, one chapter before in chapter 17, the passage we looked at last week. And, And now by the time we get to chapter 18, three years have passed. And three years of drought. The drought began at Elijah's first appearance. A drought, according to the author of 1 Kings, began because Israel king Ahab had led the people astray due to his worship of a foreign god named Baal. Well, evidently, God has decided that three years of drought is long enough, and we're told that it was severe in the land of Samaria, where Ahab had his residence. So, Uh, Elijah is sent to the king. This will be the first time that the king and Ahab had seen each other since the drought began. And up until this point, except for that initial drought declaration, Elijah's ministry has all been done incognito or in, in hiding. And God decides now it's time for him to go public. Verse 3. Ahab summoned Obadiah, who was in charge of the palace. Now, Obadiah revered the Lord greatly. When Jezebel was killing off the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets, hid them fifty to a cave, and provided them with bread and water. The name Obadiah in Hebrew means servant of Yahweh, and and this story with Elijah is the only place in the Bible in which this particular character is mentioned. Most scholars do not believe that this is the same Obadiah for which the Old Testament prophet book is named for. Well, evidently, Quite a bit has been taking place while Eli was off uh, eating chicken wings in the Wadi Cherith. Queen Jezebel, the Phoenician princess who married King Ahab, and brought along with her that worship of Baal and Asherah and other foreign gods, well, she's gone on a killing rampage, slaughtering as many priests of Yahweh as she can find. Fortunately, Obadiah used his position of influence in the palace to secretly save 100 prophets by providing sustenance for them and hiding them in some undisclosed caves. Verse 5. Then Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water and to all the wadis. Perhaps we may find grass to keep the horses and mules alive and not lose some of the animals. So they divided the land between them to pass through it. Ahab went in one direction by himself and Obadiah 
went in another direction by himself. Now, we as readers know that rain is on the way, right? We've heard God instruct Elijah to go and tell that news to the king, but they don't know that rain is on the way. And the king is in severe crisis mode right now. The key, he's doing whatever he can to try to save the, the royal animals uh, that the king owns. Now, you may remember last week that I mentioned there's two miti- mitigating circumstances when it comes to this particular drought in this particular time in history. For starters, it was the king's responsibility to provide for the well-being of all of his subjects, including the proliferation of crops. It's kind of like how today uh, it's seen to be the president's responsibility to take care of the economy. Well, the drought devastated both the people and the kingdom. And so King Ahab, over these three years, have been, has now been seen as being ineffective discredited and basically incompetent. His desperate plan to search for water just to save some of his animals shows how far out of control his kingdom has got. Second, the god that Ahab has chosen to align himself with is Baal. Baal was the Phoenician god of fertility and the god of the storm. So a drought was a direct affront to Baal's superpowers, if you will. And then in the next 10 verses, Obadiah runs into Elijah as Elijah is on his way to meet the king. Elijah asks that he go and tell Ahab that he wants to meet with him. And Obadiah knows that the king and queen have been searching far and wide for Elijah these past three years. But God has kept Elijah hidden so well, they never found him. Jezebel wants him dead. And she has killed countless other men of God in the meantime. And, and oh, I don't know if you heard, says Obadiah to Elijah, but I had to hide a hundred prophets of God just to keep them from being killed like so many others were. Obadiah knows that once he goes back to the king, God will undoubtedly uh, whisk Elijah away to safety, and then Obadiah is going to look like a fool in the eyes of the king, and in fact, it might even cost him his head. Verse 15. Elijah said, as the Lord of hosts lives before before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to the king today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Verse 17, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? He answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Isn't it interesting how we interpret events based on our own perspectives? King Ahab has seen his country fall into economic ruin with this three-year drought, and he remembers the one who started it all, Elijah, or at least announced that it would be started. Therefore, in Ahab's eyes, Elijah is the troubler of Israel. Richard Nelson, in his interpretation commentary on First and Second Kings notes, that that word troubler was used when people made oaths with one another, especially when someone would make a foolish oath or they would break a foolish oath. And so Ahab sees Elijah as having uttered foolish words to start this whole three years of disaster off. But Elijah, on the other hand, from his perspective, he sees Ahab as the one who's the troubler, For it was his decision to allow the worship of Baal to become Israel's national religion. That's what started it all. And what a statement to make 
to stand before the king of your country and announce that the leader of the nation, the one who's supposed to be looking out for the best interests of the people, in fact, has been the one that has led their country to destruction. That's when Elijah comes up with a plan, a very competitive plan, verse 19. Now, therefore, have all Israel assemble for me at Mount Carmel with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at at Jezebel's table. Now, we know that there are only 100 prophets of God left plus Elijah, but there are close to 900 prophets of Baal and Asherah, a, a Phoenician goddess. That evidently Jezebel has been uh, ordering out buffalo wild wings to the royal palace to them for the last three years. And not worried about being outnumbered 900 to 1, Elijah calls them out and has them meet him up on Mount Carmel. Now here's our handy-dandy map of the ancient Near East. Bethlehem is here, down in the south of Israel. Samaria is smack dab in the middle, that's where Ahab had his uh, palace. Zarephath, where Elijah has been staying with the widow and her son, that's up in the north land of Phoenicia, both uh, Jezebel and Baal's home turf of Sidon. And here is where Mount Carmel is located, right along the Mediterranean seacoast. Here's what it looks like today from a distance. Here's what the peak looks like up close. And this is the view looking down from the top at the Mediterranean Sea and the town of Haifa. What a breathtaking location to hold a showdown. Verse 20. So Ahab sent to all the Israelites and assembled the prophets at Mount Carmel. Elijah then came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people did not answer him a word. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Uh, Limping with two different opinions. Rather curious, but it's clear what Elijah is referring to. The people of Israel seem perfectly content to have one hand worshiping Baal and uh, the other on occasion worshiping Yahweh. And and Elijah is incredulous. You can't have it That way, it can't be a both-and situation. It has to be an either-or when it comes to aligning your life completely to a belief system. In fact, some also think that limping may be a reference to the way the prophets of Baal worship, as we'll see in a few verses. But the part that I think is the most shocking here is the last part. The people did not answer him a word. Now, that either means they they can't make a decision because they're torn between uh, what they perceive to be the the value that both uh, choices offer, or they don't even feel the need to make a decision, which in effect means that their hearts are already too divided to give God what God asks, whether they know it or not. Either way, their lack of response is deafening, and it had to have been like a punch to the gut. For Elijah. Now, we, we have a very curious verse next, which is going to come back into play next week. So make a mental note of this. Verse 22. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets number 450. Now, it's not the counting that I find curious for Elijah. It's his 
perspective. Right? He thinks he's the only one who's left to serve the Lord. But we know that Obadiah just told him that he had hid 100 prophets of God away in the caves, safe from Jezebel's wrath. Was Elijah just being uh, overly dramatic for effect? Had he already forgotten what Obadiah had said? Or did he simply have it in his mind that really he was the only one who was doing what God required? I dare say that's a dangerous place to be, friends. Anytime we start judging other people's spirituality or devotion, that should be a red flag in our spirit. It is not our job to judge another person's faith or relationship to God. That's God's job. So then, Elijah starts laying out the parameters of this mountaintop spectacle. There are going to be two sacrificial bulls. The prophets of Baal can pick whichever one uh, they want. Elijah will work with the leftover. Cut the bull up, place it on the altar, put the firewood underneath, of course, and then start praying. The first god to uh, get the bull to barbecue status will be the winner. Oh, and Elijah says, you know, the, the prophets of Baal, you 450, you can go first, because that's just the kind of good sport that Elijah was. And all the people said, yes, bring it on. But that may be a very, very loose Hebrew translation of what actually said in the scriptures. Anyway, verse 26. So the prophets of Baal took the bull that was given them, prepared it, called on the name of Baal from morning until noon, crying, O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice and no answer. They limped about the altar that they had made. So, uh, as we say today, electing to receive, the prophets of Baal start this contest off. They slice, they dice, they put the bull on the altar, and then they start praying. From morning to noon, they're praying and praying and limping around the altar. But there was no voice and no answer, says our narrator. Which must have been a little bit surprising and disconcerting to the prophets of Baal. I mean... He was the storm god, of course, right? You know, uh, rustling up a little lightning storm. That shouldn't have been a problem, but yeah, no. And that's when Elijah speaks up. Verse 27. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud! Surely he is a god. Either he's meditating or has wandered away or he's on a journey or, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. Now, every competitive athlete knows the advantage that trash-talking can give, right? Psychologically, being able to get into the head of your opponents can be invaluable. Personally, I've developed a well-honed gift for sarcasm at athletic events, right? So much so that when our son was playing high school competitive soccer, there were times that my wife refused to sit next to me because of my witty comments that I was able to shower upon referees and opposing teams. By the way, I had to stop that uh, once I started filming Ezra's games during his junior and senior years of high school to make a highlight reel for potential coaches. Uh, it was only then that I discovered how ridiculous other parents sounded with their trash talking. <sighs> well, Elijah wasn't video recording, so he pumped up his sarcasm slider. Is he meditating somewhere? Uh, traveling overseas? Maybe he's sleeping, Elijah says. Now, I found an interesting connection to that sleeping reference. It turns out that in Phoenician mythology, the god Baal actually dies every year during the summer season. That 
dry season, when there isn't much foliage in the Middle Eastern deserts. And then he's brought back to life again at the start of the rainy season by the goddess Asherah. So, so maybe this was a not-so-subtle dig on that mythology by Elijah. Well, definitely got under the skin of the 450 prophets, which is exactly what Elijah was intending. That's what a good trash-talking will do. And they upped their game. Verse 28. Then they cried aloud, and as was their custom, they cut themselves with swords and lances until the blood gushed out over them. As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice, no answer, and no response. Now, there's no truth to the rumor that the nickname for the prophets of Baal's uh, football team were the Screaming Leeches. None whatsoever. But that would be an amazing fantasy football team name, wouldn't it be? The Screaming Leeches. Anyway, scholars tell us that this practice probably goes back to the mythology of Baal dying during that dry summer season. And by gashing themselves, they were trying to identify with the dead an act that they hoped would reverse the normal course of the created world. In short, they hoped that it would appease Baal and bring him out of hibernation, bring the rains, the lightning, the storm a bit early. But despite their Herculean efforts, there was no voice, no answer, and no response. As Walter Brueggemann puts it, Baal is absent, silent, indifferent, unresponsive, uncaring, and evidently un willing to answer them. With the home team now being shut out, it was Elijah's turn to step to the plate. And after calling the people to come closer to him, Elijah does this, verse 30 and beyond. First, he repaired the altar of the Lord uh, that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones... He built an altar in the name of the Lord. Biblical scholar Gerhard von Rad in his classic Old Testament theology series mentioned that Elijah was probably repairing an altar that had been set up sometime after King David's reign. You see, Mount Carmel had been in Canaanite territory, Baal territory, long before Israel settled back into the Middle East. And so it had been an altar to Yahweh set up in a foreign territory. And over time, it had evidently fallen into disrepair or was intentionally destroyed by the devotees of Baal. And now, at this time, in this pressure moment, with everything on the line, Elijah starts by repairing the altar. He wants to make sure this this isn't just going to be a show. This is grounded And what's most important, in heartfelt worship of God. Now, the 12 stones are significant, of course, representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, which was their history, right? The the way that the people were organized uh, into groups prior to having a human king to lead them. And Elijah invokes the name of Jacob as well as the naming of the people of Israel. This is, make no mistake, this is a patriotic moment. Elijah is seeking to reground them, to remind them who they are from the very core of their being. Now, I dare say for some of us, this part right here, this may be the most important part of the biblical story for us today. So I have to ask, 
How's our altar looking, friends? Have we been keeping the area of our heart where we draw closer to God on a regular and consistent basis? How is that looking in our lives and in the lives of our family? Have our altar stones gotten a little scattered over the years? I mean, maybe we were raised to, to have this love and devotion to, to be part of a worshiping community on a regular basis, and the stones were stacked so nicely, and over time, with neglect or maybe intention, has gotten knocked down. What would it mean for each of us to begin as individuals to repair the altars of our lives, to repair that connection we have to the holy? For some of us, this coronavirus era has been the perfect opportunity. I mean, from a church leadership standpoint, it's forced us to start live streaming. I've had parishioners and church members say to me, oh, wouldn't it be great, Pastor Jim, if we had a chance to, to watch the service when we weren't there on Sunday morning? And all I could think of, no, it's too expensive. We don't have the, we don't have the equipment. Uh, it, it's too much. We won't be able to do that. But now we're doing it. And people can connect to God and through this worship service at any time. For others, maybe we've been coming to the faith rather consistently, but the stones of our hearts haven't been in order. And we've been distracted or, or disconnected when we've been worshiping. What, what would it take for us to recommit every time we draw close to God, to give God 100% of our attention, our heart, our devotion, to follow through on the messages that God reveals to us when we're in worship, whether it's through the prayers, through the songs, through the scripture, or through the sermon. I think that's part of what it means to rebuild our altars. Frederick Buechner, in his whimsical book, Peculiar Treasures, a biblical's who's who, describes what happens next in this story. He writes, Elijah was like a magician getting ready to pull a rabbit out of a hat. First, he had a trench dug around the altar, filled it with water. Then he got a bucket brigade uh, going to give the offering a good dousing too. And then as soon as they finished, he got them to do it again for good measure. And by the time they finished, a third go around, the whole place was awash. And Elijah looked as if he'd just finished swimming the English Channel. Then he gave Yahweh the word to show his stuff and jump back just in time. So Elijah is making sure there are no misunderstandings here. No hoaxes, no deceptions, no sleight of hand tricks will be taking place on top of Mount Carmel today. Nope, Elijah drenches the bull and the wood with 12 jars of water. There's that number 12 again. Interesting note that numbers in the Bible almost always mean more than just the number that they represent. Here, of course, it's connecting once again to the 12 tribes of Israel, to their history. After praying a prayer that recognizes Yahweh's authority, Elijah petitions God by, by asking that this be a teaching moment, right? We parents, those that teach for a living, you know these teaching moments come every so often. This would be for Elijah, he prays that God would use this as an opportunity to bring the hearts of the people back to the one who created them. This could be an altar-repairing moment for them. 
And then fire rains down from heaven immediately right there on the spot. No dancing or limping required. No crying out in anguish. No dramatic bloody effects for emphasis. No, just good old-fashioned fire. Verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering, the wood, the stones, the dust, even licked up the water that was in the trench. When all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord is indeed God. The Lord is indeed God. This is, of course, a total and complete burnt offering of biblical proportions. And of course, the people are going to choose God's side now, right? After that impressive display of fireworks, they've suddenly decided, okay, yeah, we're not going to be on the fence anymore. Uh, We choose God. But I want us to take a step back for just a moment, actually to step back a few verses to the start of this showdown. Do you remember the question that Elijah asked the people when they first started out on the mountain that morning? Verse 20 and 21. Elijah then came near all the people and said, how long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. He's basically asking, okay, so... Is the Lord the one true God? Is Yahweh the one to be followed? And the people said nothing at the time. Now, Elijah could have scolded them. He could have berated them for failing to be the men and women of faith that God had called them to be that he didn't. No, he didn't choose to decide for them. Instead, God answered himself. Gerhard von Rad writes this. This was the only possible way by which Israel could have been saved. That she could never of herself have been delivered from her neglect of her faith and worship. Unless Yahweh himself had once again borne great and glorious witness to himself. Such a declaration was, of course, a far more wonderful and more decisive answer to the question of who was God in Israel than any human reply, however solemn it may have been. Isn't that how God often works, friends? We may think that we're not being tempted to follow other deities, but how often do we, when faced with the challenges and difficulties of life, forget to first go to God for guidance and direction? I mean, how many of us try to come up with whatever ways we can to get out of this on our own, with our own wisdom, strength, and courage? How often do we fail to turn to God in prayer or give God anything less than 100% of our hearts? And in the midst of a limping about in our own indecision, God will often come through by showing us that he's still there, that we're not alone, that God is the one who wields power, yes, but also love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. And make no mistake, God doesn't always swoop in with powerful displays of fire and lightning like he did on Mount Carmel. But time and time again, God comes to us in God's perfect timing, and gives us not whatever it is we want, but what we need, what we need most. In this difficult time of the COVID-19 global pandemic, we may want God to shoot fire down from heaven and destroy this coronavirus in one fell swoop, but chances are that's probably not how this whole thing is going to go down. The question is, for us, In this uncertainty, can we still give God our hearts, our souls, and our complete trust? Can we wake up 
each and every morning and make the choice to align our lives with the creator of the universe, even though the newspapers, the TV, and wherever we look says otherwise. See, no matter what challenge comes our way, we will get through this together, friends, because of the one who created us, who redeems us, who sustains us, and holds us in the palm of his hand. Now, the story takes a rather dark turn in the aftermath of the contest. According to 1 Kings 18, verse 40, Elijah instructs the prophets of Baal, the losers, to be killed immediately. Now, some commentators note that Elijah was responding to the slaughter of Yahweh's prophets at the hand of Jezebel. Others remark that Elijah was simply following the commands of Deuteronomy 13, 13 to 15, whereby anyone who leads God's people to worship other gods should be killed. Some say that had the 450 emerged victorious, well, death is exactly what would have happened to Elijah. I mean, he knew going into this that this was a life and death situation, that they were playing for keeps. Well, the final thing to happen in chapter 18 is that God fulfills what God told Elijah he was going to do at the very start of the chapter, and that's to send rain. Elijah tells the king that God is sending rain, and sure enough, that's what happens for the first time in three solid years. And once again, God shows just who is in charge of rain, of storms, of fertility and life. It was a total and complete victory for Yahweh. And you'd think that Elijah would be ecstatic, having just been a part of this amazing display of mountaintop might, but... Things are not always as they seem. And that's where we'll pick up next week as Mountains and Valleys continues. In the meantime, may we have no hesitation in where and with whom we place our life and our trust, especially in times such as this. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.